Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because we're talking about a wonderful little milkweed that desperately needs some conservation attention, and that is why my guest is here today. We are talking about Mead's Milkweed with Dr. Christine Edwards of the Missouri Botanical Garden. Mead's milkweed is growing increasingly rare on the landscape. It loves pristine remnant prairies, and as you've heard in previous episodes, those are harder and harder to come by these days. But thanks to people like Dr. Edwards, we have a better idea of what is needed to conserve the species to keep it on the landscape for generations to come. I don't want to spoil any of her thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Christine Edwards. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Christy Edwards, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to talk with you today, but first let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, I'm Christy Edwards. I am the Stephen and Camilla Brower uh, Conservation Geneticist at the Missouri Botanical Garden. And yeah, and I run the conservation genetics program here. Excellent. I am a huge fan of the work that you do. And I'm, again, the topic we're talking about today is near and dear to my heart. But where did this all begin for you? I mean, were you interested in nature as a kid? Were you more the molecular side, like genetics, and really wanted to just find a system to fit that into? How did it all kind of unfold for you? So I definitely came to this field as more of a nature lover. Hmm. Um, you know, and so, for example, so my mom had a green thumb when I was growing up. And so she would, she was actually, when I was a kid, she was taking like a landscape architecture course. Hmm. And so one of the things that got me really interested in plant diversity when I was a kid is I went to on this field trip. Like, so she was, I would go on these field trips with her. Um, and it was like a plant ID field trip, oh, wow. like like a plant ID course. And so we would go and uh, the guy would show all the different trees in Colorado. I'm from Colorado. Huh. And so I was like, oh, that's super cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. So- yeah. And then, you know, just kind of as a overall nature lover, you know, I would kind of, you know, run around in the woods near my house and things like that. So it just kind of became interested in plants that way. Excellent. I always am curious how many kids really get into it plants first. Uh, it's definitely a rarity, but happens. Um, but when did you realize you could make a career out of this? I mean, what really set you on the path to being like, no, I want to do this for a living? Well, so so I was always kind of interested in biology, and then when I was an undergrad, I went on a study abroad, and I took this tropical ecology and conservation course for a semester, and I think they they really kind of hammered home the point about conservation, mm. um, and I also was just really interested in the plants, and I saw there was just so much diversity, and I think that course definitely kind of sealed sealed the uh, interest into me. And then so when I got back, I started, you know, volunteering for a PhD student and did a bunch of research up in Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, Once again, it was like IDing plants. It was super cool. And I got really into that. Um, Hmm. And then, you know, I, you know, I just kind of kept doing all these different plant jobs. So after graduating from college, I got, I was a a field botanist um, up in Massachusetts for a few few months, uh, once again, it was just plant ID. Um, really interested in plant diversity. Hmm. Um, yeah. So then, when I wanted to go to graduate school, I was just, you know, how can I study plant diversity? And 
So I kind of came at it as like systematics conservation um, and then did a PhD in systematics and conservation genetics. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. I love that conservation was kind of the thread appreciating the number and uniqueness of all the plant species out there, but really wanted to kind of use these theoretical approaches to do something in the realm of keeping plants on the la- landscape for future generations. Hopefully. Exactly. <laughs> ad yeah, in, that's ad infinitum or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's the main goal, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, yeah, I, I can imagine it is both exciting and I know for a fact how daunting it can be when you finally are staring down the decision tree you've made and going, okay, now I have to find work in this. And now you've ended up at Missouri Botanical Garden, which is one of the most amazing botanical gardens and it's got this wonderful other side to it of all of the conservation that goes on you know both in the public eye and behind the scenes depending on the degree of interest but uh yeah it sounds like it really worked out for you (laughs) yeah you know honestly I absolutely love my job um I feel like I have the best job you know I basically get to work on cool plants and I get to do you know whatever research project I want to and you know I feel like what I do just generally is making a difference in conservation. You know, we're, be, we're able to do conservation just a little bit better, you know, with the mm. genetic information. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a great job. And you kind of hinted at it there, but yeah, it sounds like it's great because you get to choose your adventure, so to speak. And I, you know, plants get the short shrift in conservation and there's more endangered plants than often a lot of the more charismatic animal groups that get all of the attention. Uh, how do you start you know, on a, okay, we've got some funding. What do we do with it? Where do you start looking or or perusing to even throw a dart and go, okay, that's the species there. Well, you know, a lot of times we're, we're approached by people who are, you know, for example, like land managers Hmm. and they will come up, you know, come to me and say, you know, I have this question I want answered. Um, so, for example, a lot of times we'll be a- approached by for ex- people who work for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Oh. Um, and they want to know, you know, for example, so, you know, with every endangered species, there's a recovery plan. Yeah. And there are the specific steps that need to be, you know, met or achieved before the species can be de- delisted. And usually those have some sort of component of genetic diversity in them. Mm. Um, so, a lot of times people will come to me and say, well, hey, can we do a genetic analysis so that we can just, dis- dis- you know, make decisions about whether we're meeting the recovery goals? Um, so then we'll, you know, if I'm interested in the project, then we'll work on finding funding <laughs> and, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, you know, but for me, like, I, I feel like so. So part of it is that, you know, I just love conservation questions. So, like, you know. <laughs> If there's like a mystery that is related to, you know, some sort of conservation, what's going on with the species, you know, or people have a really great question. I just get like super excited about it. Nice. (laughs) um, You know, or, or, you know, they're like, how many, you know, what, what kind of steps do we need to do to reintroduce this species or, you know, how well are we doing it, you know, capturing genetic diversity. So, um you know, people come to me with these great questions and then I just, you know, set up an experiment and wow. try to find funding for it and, <laughs> and we work on it. <laughs> it's a yeah. pretty sweet place to be. I mean, it's nice to be able to be naturally curious, follow up on that curiosity, but also have collaborators, other 
really intelligent professionals coming to you and kind of sharing ideas, having new questions, things that you might not have thought about, things they might not have thought about. It's really nice to hear that's kind of how this process unfolds in a, in a lot of cases. I'm sure, uh, you know, there's always exceptions to every rule. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the way it works, you know, and I really wouldn't be doing all these projects if I didn't have like great contacts and, you know, land managers and other scientists and researchers. That's a very collaborative process. Yeah. And you, you've bitten off a really interesting component of this work because land managers can do a lot, you know, they're the hands on the ground, boots on the ground kind of people, but genetic diversity is not something you can go out on the landscape and readily observe period. Like you just can't do that unless there's some weird phenotypic thing associated with it. And so when you start talking about conservation and genetic diversity, if you're in this, in the thick of it, reading about it all the time, it makes sense. But for the average listener, you know, why do we care about the genetic diversity of rare organisms in general and especially plants? Well, so genetic Diversity is kind of the underlying basis for the physical physical and functional differences among individuals in a population. And so that's important because that can lead to kind of resiliency or adaptive capacity, you know, when a species is facing some sort of threat. So, for example, if you have a very droughted year, you know, you may have some individuals in the population that have a higher um, water use efficiency or something. And so they'll be able to withstand that drought. Whereas, um, if you don't have a lot of genetic diversity, you know, maybe there aren't those individuals that have a a high ability to withstand drought. Um, so that genetic, genetic diversity is essentially kind of, we're hoping that if we conserve genetic diversity, we will help improve or improve resiliency in the kind of the long-term outlook of a species. Good. (laughs) Those are all great (laughs) insights into this process. And I would guess, and again, I am really sorry because I am a novice with genetic anything, uh, but genetic diversity can kind of mean different things for different organisms on some level. I mean, surface value, the way you measure it or at least approach it can be kind of vary by system. Um, well, I, I would say that you, you mean like, again, between like plants and animals or insects or something or across plants across plants even i mean even within different species is can you expect different levels of genetic diversity um you know what's a lot for one species might be a little for another or vice versa or am i just really off the mark and and don't understand it enough oh no not at all um so yes there are some plants for example uh plants that are selfers like they Mm self-fertilize and and generally those plants they'll have very low genetic diversity within their populations um and then you'll find that all of the diversity lies among populations so one population will be very different from the next Mm. and and the next one um whereas things that are outcrossers generally will have higher genetic diversity within populations um but then they may have less among population genetic variation so um the populations will be less different from one another because there'll, there'll be gene flow that happens that occurs between different populations. Um, so, so, I mean, in some ways when we think about genetic diversity, we have to think about how it's structured within and among populations. And, and there can be very different ways that, that happens because of the life history strategies of plants. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I, so I think, I see what your point is, you know, and there's also things that are like clonal, <laughs> yeah. right? So you might have a whole population that looks 
like all, it looks like a whole bunch of different plants. Um, and then you genotype it and it's all the same individual <laughs> and they're just, you know, connected underground via the roots. So, you know, and plants do all kinds of crazy things like that. So they're selfers or outcrossers, you know, sometimes they're apomictic, so they can do asexual reproduction, you know, mm. so you'll have a seed and it will, it's asexual reproduction by seed. So they'll asexually reproduce and every single individual will be the same. <laughs> it's like you do all, they do all kinds of crazy things. Ooh, boy. <laughs> but that's yeah. fun if you're a plant nerd, I could see, cause you have to get to know the species to really start drilling in on these questions or at least understanding the answers to some of these questions. Yeah. You know, and so being a plant population geneticist, I'm sure everybody, you know, it may sound boring, but it's actually really exciting <laughs> because you just never, <laughs> you like never know what you're going to find. It's actually really, really, really exciting. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you're talking to the right audience, please do. Yeah, that's true. Right. <laughs> what you do at all. Um, and so the reason we connected today actually is some really exciting work you've done uh, on a species that near and dear to my heart, near and dear to many of my friends' hearts, uh, if you're lucky enough to live in an area that has it, Mead's milkweed. And I, you know, saying it, it's alliteration. I love that, but it doesn't sound necessarily exciting if you haven't seen this plant and understand it, understood its place. So where, where did your introduction to Mead's milkweed begin and what is this plant all about? So I started working on it um, through a contact at the Missouri Department of Conservation. Uh, her name is Melissa Brigler. She's the Missouri State Botanist. Nice. And um, the Missouri Department of Conservation has been working on these milkweed for, you know, 15 years. Um, and they've been doing a bunch of reintroductions, a series of reintroductions, you know, at many, many different prairies across the Midwest. Um, and... So the reason I got involved in it is because, um, you know, there's there's been this longstanding kind of assumption in the literature. It was kind of something that was asserted a long time ago that um, that essentially the species has had low reproductive success mm. because of um, because of low genetic diversity. Um, oh, there we go. Yeah. And, and so, uh, my colleague at the Missouri or at Missouri department of conservation, they've been doing all these reintroductions for many, many years. Um, and then they kind of are finally at the point where they're like, is this really a good idea? <laughs> you know, like yeah. this is a basic assumption that they're doing all these reintroductions. Is it, they have low fecundity because they have low genetic diversity. And so that's where she, she came in. She came oh, and wow. talked to me about it and was like, could you do a study to actually test whether low genetic diversity <laughs> is the cause of low fecundity in this pro in this species? Um, nice. So again, pays to have those contacts that know who you are, know what you're up to and vice versa. And yeah, I, <laughs> I could see a point where you're doing practical reintroductions on the ground species conservation, then going, especially for plants when you have to wait a long time sometimes to see the fruits of any labor go, are we, are we doing this wrong? Did we just make a huge mistake for decades potentially? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, you know, like raising, so collecting the seeds is hard. You know, these plants don't reproduce that often. Um, so trying to find the fruit in the field is hard. And then, you know, you can get it to germinate, but then, you know, usually it takes a year and a half. So you have to take care of the plants for a year and a half before you put them out in the field. You know, and then they have relatively low success rates in terms of survival. So for example, you know, 50 or 30% of the plants you actually put out will, uh, make it. Dang. Um, so, 
you know, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of work to be doing if for a reason where you're like not exactly sure that the re- <laughs> the underlying reason is correct. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But talk to me about the plant a little bit. I mean, if you've seen the species, it's a charming little plant. I'll never forget. I It was one of those where I net, didn't know what it was, never heard of it before, didn't know I was going out to see it, started keying it out. And I got to the point that he was like, what is this little thing? And then one Google search later, I'm like, oh, that was very special. <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. But tell, tell it's, it's a milkweed, so people will know that in a bigger context. What is Mead's milkweed all about? Well, so it's just, it's a federally threatened species. Um, and in general, the reason why it's threatened is because it's, a, it generally really likes high quality prairie remnants. Uh, so if a prairie habitat has been, if there was a prairie, it's a reconstructed prairie uh, and it was tilled, you're just not going to find means milkweed there. Um, so it's only found in prairie and um, then also the rhyolite glades down in uh, South eastern or southwestern missouri and oh. st francis mountains okay um but you know it's just really rare because prairies have generally been tilled and made into agricultural fields um yeah. so it just you know it, it's just really rare you almost never see it um so if you do happen to come across it while you're just on a hike that's amazing yeah i was uh, in a very very small remnant prairie when i found it and uh yeah, it was one of those you're like, oh, yeah, okay. That's why I've never encountered this before. <laughs> yeah, you almost never see it. It's really, really rare. And even then, it's not a big plant. I mean, from what I remember, the tallest individuals barely came up over my boot. Yeah, the ones, you know, a big one will be maybe knee high. You oh, know? wow, okay. Um, but, you know, they're also hard to see because a lot of times it's in a prairie, right, where you're, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> like there's a, you know, 400 other species in that prairie that look a lot like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when it's not in yeah. bloom, you're like, huh? <laughs> what is that? Oh, yeah. You can't, you will never see it if it's not in bloom. You know, the, the flowers are very distinctive, though, because, sure. they're, you know, they're the kind of pendant flowers. It's a, it's, it's an umble of, of flowers um, and it hangs upside down um, and they're kind of greenish, yellowish. So it's a very distinctive flower for a milkweed because most of them are upright. Um, so if you see it, it's pretty distinctive, um, but you're not going to see it unless you're like in a high quality prairie. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as we've established few and far between of those. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. And so when I hear stuff like this, I, I kind of get a lump in my throat because I'm so fresh out of grad school that, oh my gosh, you're trying to do an experiment, trying to understand this. A, it's extremely endangered or maybe not extremely endangered. It's not doing well. So that is kind of we better make this worth it. And then B it's few and far between. And so you have this issue or at least potential issue of numbers of individuals to even bring into a a sound study system. So obviously working with the state botanist helps that, but how do you approach a lot of work that you do with rare species like this, where your numbers are not necessarily on your side? So, so in terms of actually just finding the plants, finding them and work like doing enough data collection to have a sound research, you know, hypothesis test. Yeah. I mean, that can be an issue. Um, yeah. So, so for this study, you know, we were, we were, so this was a a special study because we had a very specific question we were testing, Mm. which was the relationship between, genetic diversity and fecundity so reproductive success and essentially the main the main 
okay, so besides this, this, the fact that this species is really rare, the other issue is it just doesn't reproduce. So, <laughs> Good. so, um, <sighs> so there's a few populations out there that will reliably produce a few fu- fruits um, every year. But then the vast majority of populations, you might get a lot of flowering individuals, but you'll just get no fruits. Mm. Um, and so that was the main issue that they were trying to address when they were doing these reintroductions. There was this theory that, so the species is clonal and self-incompatible. Mm. Um, so it's clonal means that you might have four or five or 10 individuals right next to each other that are genetically identical to each other. Um, and then it's self-incompatible. So if pollen, if it's pollinated by self-pollen, it cannot, uh, produce a fruit. Um, so because of that, there's always been this theory that it has low fecundity because there's just not enough genotypes, distinct genotypes in the population right. to mate with. Right. So basically, you know, we the, the goal of this study was to look at the relationship between genetic diversity and fecundity. So for this one, we needed to have populations that uh, they were going to make sh- – there, there was fruits that were going to mature, like, throughout the whole season. Right. So, yeah. so the thing is, is that these are – these are things that are found in prairies. Yeah. And a lot of prairies that have needs milkweeds are, are hayed in the middle of oh, the year. No. Right. So basically we had to find sites for this species that, that were large enough to have a good sample size, but also that, that the owners wouldn't hay it in the middle of the season. Right. Um, Cause if it's hayed, then it essentially just cuts off all the fruits and, and then the studies would be yeah. over. <laughs> and it's done. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> So essentially, the for this study, we had to f- not only find sites that had relatively large populations, but we also had to communicate with the landowners and make sure that they were going to manage it in a way that would be suitable f- for inclusion in our study. Um, so, so for, yeah, so for for the sites, um, we worked with, for example, the heritage database, the natural heritage databases in um, in both Missouri and Kansas, and then we also just worked. Um, there was, we had this volunteer who just loves Mead's milkweed. His name's Lance Jesse. And he has been out to like every single population in Missouri and oh, he wow. knows exactly where all the plants are. Go Lance. So yeah, he was awesome. So he was like, I think you could work on this prairie and this prairie and this prairie. And, and then he was like, here's the landowner's phone number <laughs> or here's their email address. So wow. I get into touch with the land landowner. We'll do things like work with heritage databases, um, iNaturalist observations, or with a botanist that know the, the plants. Um, and then we'll just go out and collect leaves off of the plants in the population. Um, so for a lot of studies, it's not nearly as difficult. Nice. So yeah, it's all hands on deck, all resources on deck (laughs) when it comes to rare stuff. Um, But yeah, then the other side of it is this idea of trying to understand genetic diversity and fecundity. And I could understand going out there and going, okay, well, we see seed pods. If it's self-incompatible, there must be enough genetic diversity, but that's not enough for the conservation of a species. So how do you start connecting those two with the genetic work to answer some of the questions you had? So for this study, what we did is we, okay, so so essentially we did a demographic study across the growing season for each population. So we would go out to a prairie or to, you know, one of the rye-like glades in, in the St. Francis Mountains in Missouri, and we would try to find every single individual in the population and so, so in a prairie, right? So, so for that, what we would do 
is we would have four or five people working together and we'd essentially walk a transect where we would kind of walk, you know, in parallel lines from each other, hmm. um, you know, maybe 10 feet apart and just look for the plants um, so that we're combing the prairie to make sure that we see every single individual. And then we'd go, you know, go back the next, you know, move down and go back. Um, so the idea was, is that we're trying to find every single individual. Um, the other good thing is, is like I said, our, our volunteer, Lance Jesse, he had <laughs> GPS coordinates for a lot of these oh, populations. Boy. Um, so he would, you know, be like, well, the plants were here. So he would go off and look for the populations and we'd look for all the other plants and <laughs> you know, we'd flag all these things. Um, and then when we found a plant, we would tag it. So we put a metal tag, uh, you know, in, on a pin right next to it. Uh, we take a GPS coordinate. Uh, we record its reproductive state, so whether it's fruiting or flowering or, you know, whether it's non-reproductive. Um, and then we would uh, then we would collect a leaf for genetic analysis. Nice. Um, so that we did that for 12 populations. Um, and then. So after that, we revisited those populations multiple times throughout the growing season. And we would go and check on the plants um, to see how many were, you know, for example, to, at first they were flowering. And then we would see next if they were fruiting. If they were fruiting, we'd put like a bag over the, the, hmm. the seed pod um, because milkweeds, they, the fruits open up and then the seeds blow away <laughs> and be able to measure fecundity. <laughs> uh, so then if we had a... a bag seed pod then we'd go back and try to collect the, the seed pod when it was you know shattered um wow. and then so so that so we did that for all 12 populations and then we took the leaf tissue back to the lab and genotyped it as well so <laughs> we were getting both a demographic measurement of the population and then a genotypic measurement of the population wow thorough and uh yeah it was a lot of work <laughs> your calendar i really admire your scheduling and timing because yeah to hit all of that to get an understanding of a what's out there how they're doing in performance and reproductive output potential but then to go back and get them when you can be able to count see i mean that's uh it's a lot of forethought and a lot of planning yeah it was a lot of work i could see it in your eyes when you say that. <laughs> this is <laughs> hard won victory here yeah it was it was it was a big project. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, so the nice thing was, is that for each population, we ended up with an estimate of fecundity, you know, number of flowering stems, number of fruits produced. Um, and then we also had an estimate of the number of genotypes that were present in the population mm. and the, the genetic diversity, you know, how inbred they were, all these different factors that, you know, people have kind of mentioned in terms of what they think could be limiting fecundity. Okay. Um, yeah. And so you went in again with the assumption or you were testing the assumption that the reason we see low reproduction in the species today is because of that lack of genetic diversity. They're too related to actually make any reproductive output meaningful in a lot of cases. But what did you end up finding? Did you see strong relationships between the genetic diversity data and the number of, you know, reproductive individuals in a population? I mean, were you starting to already get hints or was this something you really had to parse out the data to get the full story? Well, in terms of fecundity, really what we found is that, so we had 12 populations and out of all of those populations, only two 
populations really produce like more than like zero or one fruits. Um, So, so I think, I think there's like five populations that produce zero fruits. And then there's a couple that produce a single fruit. Um, And then there was two populations. One produced like, Oh, it was something like 15 fruits and the other one produced nine. And so um, first of all, we saw this huge like spread in terms of fecundity. So most populations produce no fruits. Two populations produce like the majority of fruits that we we collected throughout wow. the growing season. And not only that, the fecundity was extremely low. So it was something like four percent of the stems actually produced a seed pod Dang. for for and I think we had something like twelve hundred individuals in our study. Oh yeah. Wow. It was crazy. So it was like 43 fruits or something out of like 1200 individuals. Yeah. So the fecundity was really low except for in like two populations. Um, but, but when we looked at the actual hypothesis that we were testing, which is the relationship between genetic diversity and fecundity, there was basically zero correlation. Wow. (laughs) So, you know, we took all the variables that we could think of. So, you know, the number of genotypes, heterozygosity, you know, allelic richness, inbreeding coefficients, um, mean relatedness among individuals in the population. Mm. And there was just zero relationship. Dang. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, that's something, right? That's not like a, oh no, what have we done? That's... Well, it was just really surprising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then we started doing some addition, you know, and you'd look at the genetic structure and yeah. essentially there was no structure. Like, hmm. Uh, there's just zero genetic structure across the landscape. So, you know, individuals that are in one population were more closely related to other individuals and populations, you know, 200 miles away. Wow. Uh, um, And the reason is, is because the species is wind dispersed or that's what I think. Fair. Um, Yeah. So essentially, you know, these, it used to be these big prairie remnants and, you know, they were a huge continuous population and, you know, the seed pot, they developed seed pods and the seeds would disperse long distances. And, and so essentially there's just no structure in the genetic diversity in the species. So essentially what we came up with was that genetic diversity was just not the cause of low reproductive success in the species. Hmm. Um, but fortunately we had all these other um, demographic v- variables that we had collected in this study. And so we started looking at those. Um, so for example, we had, you know, the number of flowering individuals and, and, and you know, estimates like that. Um, yeah. And it turns out that the, the relationship was a little bit more simple than kind of the explanation that had been, which is essentially the, the, was that the species, uh, populations that had more flowering individuals had higher reproductive success. Um, so essentially you just need about, and then, and there was a threshold effect. So essentially, um, when you hit a threshold of about 50 flowering individuals in the population, um, you got really high reproductive success. Okay. So this is sort of a law of large numbers game for the species in a lot of ways. A lot of available habitat historically would have allowed these populations to mix as the wind was blowing seeds all over. They established wherever they ended up in suitable conditions. And then the other side of it is just having enough flowers out there for pollinators to do the work, to be able to increase the chances of visiting one unrelated individual after another to even set seed. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was really simple. We just need (laughs) 
a lot of flowering individuals in a population in order for it to reproduce. Wow. Um, so it's actually what's called, it's, it, it's what looks like what's called an Ali effect, you know, where you just okay. have, have to have, um, so an Ali effect is where you have an aggregation of individuals in the, in a population uh, and that's necessary for population growth. And so that's what, what this is here. It's an Ali effect, um, where you have to have an aggregation of flowering individuals in a population. And like you said, we think it's related to pollination biology. We think that, you know, you just have to have a large number of individuals in the population um, flowering at once to either attract pollinators or for pollinators to move the pollen between individuals successfully. Do we know who the main pollinators for the species are or like the what suite of organisms? Is it bees, butterflies, that kind of thing? Yeah, actually, there was a, a really great um, pollination biology study by uh, Aretha Edensmeyer at St. Louis University that was published a few years ago. And um, what they found was that there's really only kind of three taxa of bees that oh. successfully move pollen. So in milkweeds, the pollen is packaged into pollinaria, um, where essentially it's a sac. Uh, um, so there's these two sacs and it's, it's connected together with this thing called a trans, you know, translator arm and a corpusculum. Hmm. Um, so because of that, it's a kind of a big package of pollen <laughs> and really the only pollinators that can successfully move pollen between individuals are these like big bees like bombus, um, honeybees, um, anthophora. So there's these big bees and those are the only successful pollinators. Right. And from the literature I've even skimmed the surface of it, those are organisms that need a big signal to even consider a plant worthy of their time. And so it makes sense where you have this kind of small obscure plant and a sea of prairie vegetation, you would need a lot of individuals for them to even notice it's something worth visiting. So yeah, this actually is a story that when you look at the natural history, repeatedly starts to make sense time and time again. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think just a little bit more simple than everybody kind of was assuming, (laughs) you know, everybody was kind of like thinking, oh, this it's a genetic diversity. Well, let's, we can do this. We can measure the genetic <laughs> right, diversity. Right. Let me add it. <laughs> yeah. And see if it's related to re- reproductive success. And it turns yeah. out that in this case, it, it just wasn't. And we think it's definitely related to pollination biology. Totally. And it, it gets me thinking, and this is something that, you know, I've, I've read in your work is that you, you start to look at sort of the generation times of even perennials, herbaceous perennials like this. They're still decades to reproductive maturity could potentially last decades on the landscape. And the question becomes, have we been looking at this stuff long enough to make those conclusions in any meaningful way? And now you've given us data to work with here and to understand, okay, yeah, maybe this is something like you said was once a contiguous population. And really we're just starting to see the decline of it as it's been fragmented into smaller and smaller and smaller habitats. So is that what you're thinking of in terms of like genetic diversity, population size today versus, you know, why this species you know, could be having a chance to recover that sort of thing? Yeah. So, so um, I definitely think that there's kind of this temporal aspect to genetic diversity that I think sometimes people don't <laughs> think about, you know, which is that something like a milkweed, you know, the, it might look like this little herbaceous thing, but you know, there are these clonal organisms and that, I wouldn't be surprised if they could live a hundred years, you know, and they will sometimes not come up every year. They'll just kind of sit underground and then they'll come up the following year. Um, 
And so the patterns of genetic diversity that we see in this species, I think that we we're looking at maybe what happened 50 to 100 years ago. Mm. You know, it's this kind of historical um, historical dynamics of the prairie. You know, so all these plants that established, maybe they established 50 to 100 years ago. And, the, you know, we just haven't seen the decline or like the, you know, the bottlenecks or the mm. uh, kind of increased structure in this species because it's so long lived. You know, maybe in 50 to 100 years from now, we'll see it. Um, right. But but um, there is this temporal aspect. So, you know, we also do studies on things like trees. And, for example, we'll see that the trees actually look you know, they may be extremely endangered, but they have really high genetic diversity. It's like, well, these trees are 150 years old. So, <laughs> so right. you know, if you looked at the adults versus the seedlings, you might see a very big difference in hmm. the patterns of genetic diversity. Um, but, you know, it just takes a long time to see those signals in these long-lived trees and, you know, long-lived yeah. you know, prairie plants. That's fascinating. I mean, when consider the implications of like adults versus juveniles today especially in long-lived stuff like that but yeah i mean really what you've measured or potentially could be measuring in a system like this is the echoes of the diversity that once existed and you make this distinction between genetic diversity and then you said bottlenecking and i'm curious what that distinction is is that sort of saying like yeah it was all once you know very diverse and contiguous but now we've bottlenecked it into these tiny populations is that kind of where that idea comes into play yeah, so a population bottleneck is essentially a it's caused by a rapid decline in population size. Um and it's essentially, you know, you just get a very small number of individuals that remain mm. and then that bottleneck is you know, you can see the remnants of that bottleneck in the genetic diversity. But usually you see it several generations yeah, yeah. down the line, right? Um, like you might see this population and it may have experienced the bottleneck 50 to 100 years ago. Mm. Or if it's an annual species, you can detect it. Like, you know. But for something like Mead's milkweed, we haven't seen the signature of the bottleneck because we're still looking at the generation that you know, was established 50 to a hundred years ago sure. uh, before, but like, we're still kind of like not looking at the bottleneck yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. Don't yeah. worry. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. 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 Well, unless we, unless we do some things to help it out. Right. But this is where work such as yours comes into play is now you've taken sort of a theoretical understanding of evolution, genetic diversity, conservation. You've applied this to a system to answer really important questions. Now you've given sort of a benchmark or at least something to aim for. Okay, if we want to bolster these populations, introduce new ones, we have to do it in a way that maintains some of this genetic diversity. We can't be just taking related individuals from the same seed pod and hope that things get better. <laughs> yeah, so that is an issue, right? So it's self-incompatible. Um, so if you take all the individuals from a, the same seed pod, they'll be you know, either full sibs or half sibs. Mm. They might have the same, you know... Um, I guess with the with the same seed pod, they would all be full sibs, right? So um, essentially the pollen area pollinates one plant or one flower on a plant. Wow. Um, so all the individuals in the seed in the seed pod would be full sibs, right? Sure. So if they're self-incompatible, the way uh, milkweed, there's self-incompatibility in milkweeds works, some of those actually would be cross-compatible. Oh, um, well, that's good. Yeah. But I mean, that that's not ideal. You don't want to put sure. a whole bunch of full, like if you're, for example, putting individuals back out into a 
population or something, you don't want to put a bunch of full sibs out there. Right. <laughs> Just because they can doesn't okay. mean they should. <laughs> yeah. Fair. But, you know, so, so we want to preserve genetic diversity, but in this species, you know, it, it actually, what we really need to be doing is just increasing population sizes. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter where, you know, we don't see a lot of genetic structure, so it doesn't necessarily matter where the individuals come from. Oh. You know, you want to put a good diversity of individuals out into populations, but really we just want to make sure that individual, that populations have 50 flowering individuals right. in it at once. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of populations for Mead's milkweed out there where there's only like, you know, 20 stems that come up every year or 15. And so those ones are probably never really going to have great reproduction because they're just too small. So I think those are the targets that are, you know, the places where we want to do reintroductions or, you know, augmentations where we add individuals to the population. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is, is there's a lot of, you know, the way that these these prairies are managed is very, you know, kind of, so the, the prairies are extremely fragmented Yeah. and generally like each little fragment of remnant prairie is managed by a different organization. Oh. Um, and they manage them in different ways and on different schedules. Um, so for Mead's milkweed, it really likes to, it really likes, uh, burning. So if you burn a population in a dormant season, the next year you'll get this big burst of stems that arrive, like that come out and then you'll get a big burst of flowering. Um, but so, you know, like you might have a bunch of remnant prairies that are right next to each other, but they'll be managed at different times. Oh, so, yeah. you know, like one will be burned in 2018 and another one will be burned in 2021. <laughs> so they're not being managed on the same schedule. So you never get to the point where, 50 individuals are flowering at the same time yeah um so basically we need to start managing in, in a more coordinated way basically yeah but again now that this information's out there it takes a couple of people to kind of get the ball rolling and then you find a good volunteer like yours and say hey can you put me in touch with this person this person and then you know you get enough people in the room you start talking about commonalities common goals here and that's where these kind of progress uh sort of movements can be made and it doesn't happen unless you have the work in place that you have done. So kudos. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, and I think there's, um, definitely land managers are, have been listening, you know, we've tried to get the message out to the people who are managing these populations. Um, so, you know, hopefully as we go forward, people will start, you know, people that have kind of neighboring populations will start, you know, managing in a coordinated way so that they'll all, all burn the populations in the same year or, you know, sometimes you'll have these big prairies and they, they want to do kind of a rotation management while they'll, they'll burn one fragment uh, one year and then the next one the next year. And it's like they don't have to burn the whole prairie. They right. just have to burn the means milkweed. <laughs> Target it. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like, yeah. you know, they have these burn units. Just do the burn units that are that contain means milkweed in the same year. You know, right. It's just burn them all at once. It's that holistic ecosystem approach, but with the idea that there's certain players in any given system that might need a little extra help or a specific approach that can really benefit something that's growing increasingly rare on the landscape. Yeah, I know there's a lot of land managers, you know, and they're managing for multiple, you know, different species and, you know, they want to burn, they don't want to burn too often because they don't want to, you know, endanger the, you know, Lepidoptera or, you know, other other taxa but yeah this is one situation where if you have a prairie and you have me 
needs milkweed in it. You might need to do a little bit something different for that one species, you know, but, but, you know, I think one of those, it's like one of those species is very special. And if you have it in your prairie, it means you have a really high quality prairie. Right, right. And so, so hopefully these land managers really, you know, I think they, they know that and they want to make sure the species persists. Um, and so I think, I think they're getting the message and they, you know, they want to do the right thing. Yeah. So, I mean, from the few people I've talked to in like in Illinois that have seen this and have the species or manage a land, like it's definitely very high up on their, we're managing for X, Y, and Z species. It's one of X, Y, or C. So, Absolutely. you know, yeah. it's special enough that that's, that's usually the scenario, at least in my experience. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, one of the rarest species in, in the Midwest and, you know, it's also this kind of iconic prairie species. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I said, it's just kind of special. And I think people want to make sure that it sticks around. And they should. That's great. And so do you see yourself continuing to work with this species or have you kind of carved off the chunk that you are interested in and now it's next? Like what's next over the horizon for you? You're, you're obviously a very busy person. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I actually just... I was just informed that I got uh, another Meads Milkweed grant Woo! from the Missouri Department of Conservation. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. So this one is actually trying to get at the exact reason why we need to have 50 flowering individuals in a population at once. Um, you know, once again, we, we have some, you know, ideas in terms of management. So we can increase population size and, you know, burn in kind of a coordinated manner to try to get to the point where we have 50 flowering individuals. But, you know, there's a couple of underlying reasons that, that you know, pollination biology works in the population <laughs> or could work better in a population of 50 flowering individuals. Um, so, you know, we're, we're looking at kind of a series of hypotheses. So it's, first of all, you know, is there just something inherently different about, you know, like small populations? Do they have less resources mm. or, you know, the second is, is do we just see that pollinators are just not attracted to small populations. Um, so they just don't visit Meads milkweed, you sure. know. And then the next the next hypothesis is they visit Meads milkweed, but they just aren't getting them, the, the pollen, to where it needs to go. They're just not getting it to a conspecific. Um, and then, again, yeah, then the last is that they just don't have the, the resources, so, like, to mature fruit. They may be pollinated, mm -hmm. but they just, the fruit's abort. Yeah. Um so we're testing a series of hypotheses because I think, you know, we could maybe manage things a little bit differently depending on the, you know, the answer. So, you know, are the pollinators absent from small populations? Well, maybe we need to do something to manage the populations to attract those pollinators. Oh. Um, or, you know, if it's the the two middle ones, you know, like the pop, the populations just aren't large enough to attract the pollinators or they're not getting the pollen where it needs to go, um, then, you know, essentially we just need to increase population size. <laughs> um, and then the last one is resource uh, limitation. You know, they just don't have the resources to mature fruit. You know, maybe we need to add some resources <laughs> so they can't mature fruit. So there, I think there's still a few things that need to be worked out. And so we're trying to get specifically the reason why large populations do do better in terms of reproductive success. Excellent. It sounds like you're going to be spending a lot more time with this species, which is pretty great. Yeah, I'm going to be sitting out in the prairies for the next three years. Well, <laughs> Looking at Mead's milkweed. And wear some sunscreen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> drink lots of water. <laughs> yeah. It'll, it's going to be fun, though. Yeah. Um, 
Totally. Those are some of the best experiences and the stuff you're going to get to see sort of tangentially just for being out there always makes it equally or more worth it. Yeah, absolutely. The The prairies are beautiful. I mean, there's so many cool plants out there and, you know, pollinators and all kinds of cool stuff. So, um, yeah, but definitely, definitely going to need my sunscreen. Big hat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. A lot of a uh, tick repellent. Oof, yeah, don't you? <laughs> itching just thinking about it but yeah it's all worth it in the end but dr edwards this has been fantastic if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your research see what kind of work you're doing where do you recommend they go looking well i have a website at the missouri botanical garden i also you know will tweet i have a twitter account my twitter handle is c edward 10 <laughs> um and so for example when we have new papers come out all all you know tweet about it um so yeah my website and twitter is usually the main places where i announce things perfect i will put up links to all of those in the show notes so that people don't have to go looking for them themselves but dr edwards thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us about this and i think i speak for everyone when i say keep kicking butt for plants thank you all right well hang in there stay healthy and uh happy botanizing all right thanks so much yep cheers all right. Fantastic stuff. Thank you all for being here. And I thank Dr. Edwards for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. I hope you learned a lot from that conversation. I know I sure did. And I'm always comforted to hear that people like Dr. Edwards and her colleagues are on the ground doing the work necessary to understand not only the plants themselves, but what is needed to protect them and hopefully get more of them back on the landscape. As always, all of the relevant links are in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. You can also find links on ways to support this show, such as by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Monthly contributions from my patrons make this show possible. I couldn't be doing it without them. Speaking of my patrons, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Jocelyn. Jocelyn signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting this credit as well as all of the wonderful kickbacks we have over there. So go check it out and consider being like Jocelyn. Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. If monthly support isn't in the cards for you, consider buying a copy of my book, picking up some of our customizable merch or some stickers, and all of those links are in the show notes as well. Once again, that is indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.